is they would write a letter or they would write a work. That they would start out by summarizing everything they were about to say. You ever have a teacher in school say this to you? Boil down what you're going to do into one sentence. Boil down what you're going to say in this paper or in this letter or in this thing that you're writing. Boil it down to a couple of words or to a sentence or to a couple sentences. And that sometimes takes more work, right, than writing the entire thing, to boil it down, to be brief and amazing, right? And so Paul here, as is common among authors in this day, is writing the thesis statement for the book of Romans. This, these two verses are going to be the two verses that govern the rest of this letter that we are going to walk through together as a church. And so let's read it together. Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. It may be common to some of you. You may have heard this before. Some of you may have memorized these verses before. Let's read them together. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. In the 16th century, the end of 1545 into 1546 were the final months of the famous reformer Martin Luther's life. And as Martin Luther is the end of his days, gathering together and uh, putting together his Latin works, he recounts the last 25 years of ministry. And he recounts one of the most famous historic moments of what I think we would call illumination, where God speaks through his word to the life of someone else. Where God speaks through his word, where he illuminates his word into the mind or into the heart of somebody. And early, what we would mark as the 500th year anniversary this October of the Reformation, two verses in Scripture launched what would be the changing of the entire world. This Augustinian monk, studying the Word of God, read these two verses. Luther, who hated these verses, he did not like them. As he read them in the past, he felt as though, how could the gospel be the righteousness of God? How could the gospel be this righteousness that, should I measure my life to it, condemns me? How could the gospel be about the righteousness of God which would bring about my end as I fall short of it? And in this time, Luther, who's looking at the Latin translation of this, sees the Greek word and, and God illuminates to him his word and it changes his life and really changes the, the trajectory of church history forever, 500 years ago, when Luther realizes that the word of God is not talking about a righteousness that condemns him, but the word of God in, in Romans 1, 16, and ver, in particularly verse 17, is talking about a righteousness of God that saves him. 
He sees that it's not a righteousness of his own, but he sees depicted in the word of God that the power of God and the salvation, which is the righteousness of God, is an alien righteousness that comes from God to him, and it's a righteousness that saves him. And Martin Luther writes these words that it's as if the gates of paradise flung open for me, and I walked through, and I was born again. The word of God illuminated in these two verses, transformed this Catholic monk's life and launched a revolution where in 1521 he would stand before the Council of Worms. And what would cause a man to stand in, in facing certain death and, and ask, be asked to contradict this, be asked to denounce this, be asked to, to denounce what God had revealed to him in his word as heresy. And he stood and he said, I cannot, I cannot do it in the face of certain death. What would cause a man unashamedly to stand in the face of the Pope in the church in certain execution and stand in front of them and say, I cannot deny what the word of God says. I can say no other. What would cause a man unashamed to stand and do that? The transforming power of the word of God in his life. And we have the privilege this morning of reading these words. And allowing the scripture to somehow illuminate to us, to somehow soak into our hearts and soak into our lives and transform our perspective in our lives this morning. Amen? Let's pray that God would do that. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us through it. That you have found a way to reveal who you are and your gospel to us. God, I pray that you would open our hearts that this word would seep deep into them, that it would transform our perspectives, transform our lives, that it would draw our affection and our worship to you, that we would see the reality and the truth of your gospel as it's revealed in your word and let it adjust us, change us, motivate us. Illuminate your word to our hearts and our minds this morning in Jesus' name. Everybody said, Amen. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What powerful words. First to the Jew, also to the Greek, and in verse 17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So here we see what has become really the title of this series for us because it really is the thesis of this book, Unashamed, Not Ashamed of the Gospel. I find it amazing, and, and I don't say this in a critical way, I say it really in an introspective way as someone who's grown up in the church, grew up as a young man going to church every day, uh, remember coming to Christ in, in the gospel in, in a way that was so simple yet so real, transforming my life as a young eight-year-old boy and then really as a 16 and 17 year old teenager, um, having a, a new transforming work happen in my life as I began to realize that this was something that God was doing in my heart and that I needed to begin to live out. Went to Bible school, uh, was uh, after graduating from Bible school, went into ministry and became a youth pastor and then later went to law school. And now I'm here. Just I say that to say this, throughout my my experience in church life and as I as I look across Christendom, particularly in America, it, 
it's amazing to me how little in some circles we actually preach the gospel as it's revealed in Scripture. Anybody else see that? How in our efforts as a church to maybe fill seats, to maybe um, appeal to a broader crowd, how many times we water down, change, adjust, even, I, I dare to say, some preach even a false gospel that's not the gospel that's revealed in Scripture in an effort to maybe tickle the ears or in an effort to fill seats or in an effort to cast the net wider. And, and even in my own life, as I've grown in ministry and been a part of different ministries, having that urge sometimes or having that sense sometimes to not look to the gospel as it's revealed in Scripture, but to, to maybe in different contexts just adjust it a little or make it a little more palatable. And we see here Paul declare, and we have to jump back because of the word for. We see him declare because of his urgency in verses 14 and 15 to come to them, to preach the gospel. I'm eager, I'm under obligation to preach the gospel to all, everybody, uh, barbarians, the wise, the unwise, the foolish, everybody. I feel this, this sense of obligation, and Mike preached about it last week, this, this response to the gospel in his own life the transforming power of the, of the forgiveness and the righteousness of Christ as it impacted Paul's life. He responded with this obligation, this sense of debt, and this eagerness to preach the gospel and to come to them in Rome. And he says, I'm so eager to come to you for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What powerful words that, that I think speak right into 2017 America. And when you look at this shame, you know, what would Paul be ashamed of? Here we see this man who is, who is really a, a Jew among Jews who had lived a life of, of exemplary, exemplary Jewishness. I mean, he, he was um, really what we would call a scholar. He was someone who had lived up to many obligations and he's transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now he begins to live a life where he's declaring to us in the thesis of this, of this epistle, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I think it's something to, to particularly look at in his life. That not only is he not ashamed of the gospel, but you have to see that it's the very gospel that he's talking about that has brought shame to him. Is it not? It's the very gospel that he's talking about that has brought him shame. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 23, he's speaking about this. He talks about, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman for far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I've received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A day and a night I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, and toil and in hardship. Through many a sleepless night and hunger and thirst, often without food. 
and cold and exposure. See this life of Paul that the very gospel he feels obligated to preach and to bring to those, to everybody, as he's declared in verse 14 and 15, has in essence brought him shame as he declares in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Near death, beatings. Can you imagine standing on a street, preaching in a town, and men coming and beating you with rods, spitting, casting him from the town, in prison, Paul in this greeting is declaring his eagerness to get to Rome, that he's been praying to get to Rome because he can't wait to preach the gospel in Rome. And what he doesn't even know yet is that he's going to come to Rome in chains. That's how his prayer is going to be answered. So this gospel that in so many ways in his context has brought him shame, he stands and he declares, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. As he preaches boldly. Despite what has been happening to him. As he's traveled and declared the word of God. A couple weeks ago. My daughter 16 years old. She came home. And. uh, She was telling me about her social studies class. She said dad. They're teaching us about the Puritans. And at the end of the class, without any ability for any students to respond, this teacher pressed play on a recording that he had of a Puritan preacher. And Sophie said to me, Dad, this preacher was preaching about the doctrine of sin. It was preaching about how humanity is utterly sinful and in need of redemption and in need of a Savior. And as the Puritan preacher was finishing Uh, his depiction of the sinfulness of man and about to launch into the redemption that Christ provides, the social studies teacher hit stop and began to mock and said, who still believes this stuff? He's about to say that Jesus is the answer. Can you believe this is what the Puritans preached? And he mocked the gospel and probably 30 16-year-old students, not knowing any better, listening to their teacher, nodded and thought, yeah, can you believe it? Can you believe this is the stuff that people used to preach? And Sophie sat there, feeling in essence, right, by her teacher, by those around her, shamed. That you would believe this. She came home not nearly as upset as I was, right? (laughs) And she explained to me what had happened in her classroom. And my first reaction was, I I, I reached for my cell phone, right? I know the superintendent. We're about to have us a conversation, right? (laughs) This is is my first response. You know, I got some 30-year-old dude who just got out of a SUNY school who's mocking the gospel in, in the context of my kid's social studies class, and I'm angry, and I'm going to have a conversation with this young man and explain to him what he doesn't know, right? And Sophie's like, whoa, she corrected me. <laughs> Dad, don't call. He's a great guy. He's a good teacher. Don't call. And I thought of this passage that Mike had just preached on. 
How politicized is our Christianity today in 2017? I mean, get on Facebook for 10 seconds and you get sucked into a conversation you cannot get out of for the next week, tit for tat. And my, what rose up in me is a desire to defend the gospel. What rose up in me is an anger towards a, a, a social studies teacher who just doesn't know. And, and as I began to reflect and as my daughter slowed me down a little bit and we began to have a discussion about what had happened to her in class and how she was to deal with it, what I began to realize is this. I'm under obligation because of what Jesus has done in my life, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to bring the gospel in love to this 30-year-old dude and all those students that sat in that class and not get into some political ranting argument in a hateful way towards him, right? Paul said, I'm under obligation to the people that beat me, to the people that spit on me, to the people that cast me from towns, to, to the people that have imprisoned me. I feel a debt and an obligation to preach the gospel. I'm eager to preach the gospel to them. And, and I began to feel compassion for a young man who just doesn't know. Who just doesn't know. And I actually rose up in, in, in encouragement towards Sophia. When I realized God has her there. I mean, this is, please don't hear what I'm not saying. This is not a commentary on school choice. I love homeschooling. I love Christian schools. And I love public schools to the degree that parents have prayed about it, thought it through, and decided what's best for their children. That's not what I'm saying. But what I realized in my first reaction and then as I, as I thought about it is, I don't want to take Sophie out of there. She belongs sitting in that classroom because all those students sitting around her need Jesus and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would I pull light out of that classroom and just let darkness reign? So I encouraged her, prepared her, talked to her about the gospel, what that Puritan was actually preaching about and how she could articulate it to her friends, how she could respond in love to the teacher the next time he brings it up. For I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Why are we not ashamed? Why are we unashamed of the gospel? Because it's the power of God to everyone who believes. Amen? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. What an amazing statement. As we articulate the reality and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ in our churches, in our relationships, in our families, in our schools, in our workplace. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because the actual gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation. We don't have to water it down. We don't have to change it. We don't have to tell you that if you come to Jesus, God will make your life great or give you a bunch of money or do this for you or do that for you. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus will give you his righteousness and it will take you from sin and death to life in a relationship with God. And I'm not ashamed of it because it's the power of God unto salvation. Amen? The words of the gospel of Jesus Christ have, have, have changed the world. 500 years ago, launched the Reformation. Not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? 
Because it's the power of God. That word power is the same word power in Romans verse, uh, chapter 1 verse 4. That talks about the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. The, the gospel of Jesus Christ has the resurrection power to transform your life and change you and change me. To forgive our sins. The, the power of God to salvation means it is a power that comes from God to transform your relationship, your covenant relationship with God. The power of God unto salvation. Not ashamed of the gospel because that's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it does. It's exactly what it has the power to do. It's what it's done in my life. And as we communicate it clearly, as we communicate it faithfully, it has that resurrection power to change the life of people who hear it. Amen? That's why the mission of this church is to, is to, is to live in such a way that the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is, is declared and it's preached to every man, woman, and child that, that all of them would have a repeated opportunity to hear it. Because if they hear it, it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Not ashamed of the gospel. What we see here is, is there's no reason to be ashamed that, that we can stand in the face of those who, when they hear the gospel, it's foolishness to them, and they would, re, they would rebuke it, they would, they would, uh, they would um, embarrass, they would attempt to shame. But we can stand in the security of the fact that it is the power of God to salvation, even though the hearers of it don't understand it and it, and it becomes foolishness to them. Paul talks about this. That the gospel to the, to the unregenerate, to the person who doesn't have the gift of faith and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit working in their life and the ability to understand and to be illuminated, that, that when they hear the gospel, it's like it's as if it's foolishness to them. They rail against it. They're not going to like it. That certainly fits into our context today, does it not? We live in a world that is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We live in a day and age where the hostility is rising. Where, where uh, you know, just pick a figure that is hostile to the gospel today. Just pick one. Where, where they would declare it as foolishness. A lot like that teacher. They would declare it as, as ridiculousness. They would declare it as, as something that's nonsensical, that's just ancient, that's just something people believing in fairy tales would think about. It's something that's, uh, here's, here's the word of today, it's, it's, it's unintellectual. And those who are intellectually consistent wouldn't believe such things. It's foolishness. But it is the power of God unto salvation. We can stand unashamed as Paul, as we allow the gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform our lives. The power of God unto salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. We see here Paul declaring that that this gospel, uh, as, as God revealed himself to the Jewish people in the Old Testament, as God, as, as God revealed himself first to the Jews, and as every, anywhere Paul would go, he would preach first to the Jews, and he would explain to them how the Old Testament points to Christ. But he also, more than any other apostle, I think, in Scripture, you see him recognizing that this gospel is for everybody, that the gospel of Jesus Christ has always been for everybody. 
And it's first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. This is an international gospel. This is a gospel that applies to everyone. Amen? He's unashamed of it. He's declaring it to everybody. It's the power of God to salvation, first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. He's eager to preach it to barbarians, to, to, to Greeks, to anybody who will listen, as it is the power of God unto salvation. This is internationally applicable. And it's also declaring that there is only one way for all of us to receive salvation. The gospel of Jesus Christ that he's unashamed of is the power of God unto salvation for everybody who believes. For everybody. It's completely inclusive for everybody and then exclusive who believes. The power of God unto salvation. Paul teaches us that it's internationally applicable for everybody who believes. Nobody's outside the scope of those who we would bring the gospel to. Nobody's outside of the scope of those who should be hearing the gospel, having the gospel preached to them. As we look at our neighbors, as we look at our region, as we look at our state, as we look at our country and our nation, as we look around the world, the power of God unto salvation is the declaration of the actual gospel that's revealed in Scripture and should be preached unashamedly to everybody. Amen? First to the Jew and then to the Greek or the Gentile. For all those who believe. So how is this the saving power of God? How is the gospel the saving power of God for all who believe? This is, this is the portion of this passage that rocked Martin Luther's world that changed uh, his life, as he said, the gates of paradise swung open and he walked through. How is the gospel the right, uh, uh, How is the gospel the power of God for salvation? It reveals, listen, as we see in verse 17, that it reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the, is the power for salvation to everyone who believes, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God is revealed. What is the righteousness of God? What we recognize as an attribute of God is his character is consistent, is it not? God is consistent in his character. He is holy other. He is, he is completely holy. He is consistent. He is righteous. And inconsistency with his righteousness as a result of the fall of man, as a result of our sinfulness, has no place in the character and the righteousness of God, right? That's why Martin Luther didn't like this verse. The righteousness of God, if the gospel is about the righteousness of God, then it condemns me. Because I'm unrighteous. Because I fall short. And what we see is Romans begins to unpack in, in, in chapters 1 through 3, our unrighteousness. You read the first three chapters of Romans, you're feeling pretty bad, right? <coughs> it declares to us, are, are falling short. No man chooses good. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And, and it begins to reveal our unrighteousness. I was having a conversation with a close friend a couple weeks ago at lunch. And I began to share the gospel with him. And, and he was giving me that, that kind of popular secular humanist you know, response. And we were discussing it. And he was engaging it. And he was asking me a lot about it. And, and this was where we ran into... A barrier. This is where the conversation really hit the road. And I'm praying that God is, 
is beginning to work in his heart as we talked about all of our need for a savior and the depth of our sin. He's an attorney. He knows I'm I'm a prosecutor at the DA's office. And he looked back at me and he said, you know the people we deal with. You see the destruction that people cause in each other's lives. You see the depth of what you would call sin in this world. How are we not better than that, right? How is it that you haven't lived a life, Jeremy, that that accomplishes, at least in the sight of God, the ability to go to heaven while these other people who are worse and make terrible choices and hurt their children and hurt loved ones and, 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 and do awful things, how are they not destined for hell and you, because of your works, destined for heaven, right? This was the, the struggle going on in the mind of this person I was talking to. As you come to understand the consistent character and righteousness of God, And in every area, and I told him, I shared with him, as I look introspectively at my own life, and I, more than anyone except for God, understand the depth of my own sin, I fall woefully short. I, as I sit here, am in desperate need of a Savior. See, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is incredibly powerful when we understand the bad news of the sin and the depth of our own sin. Amen? The righteousness of God is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So what is this? In our covenant relationship with God, God pledges Himself to be righteous. The issue is, are we rightly related to God in covenant? Are we in a right relationship with God in the covenant that He has made with us? And the initial answer to that question is from Romans, no. Nobody's in a right relationship with God. We have all fallen short of the covenant relationship with God. We can't experience the joy and the fellowship of God because we have fallen short on our end of the bargain We are not in right relationship. None of us is rightly related to him. And so the only answer to that is judgment. Sin must be judged. The debt must be paid. And here's what we see in this verse. Paul brings to bear on this verse the whole of God's word on righteousness as it's revealed that God has devised a way in acting with perfect righteousness in providing a way for sinners to receive and stand before God righteous. This is what Paul has done in this righteousness. As Luther read the Greek word, he began to realize that what was being declared in the word of God is not the righteousness that condemns us as we fall short of the righteousness of God, but what we see is is an alien righteousness that is given to us because of Jesus. Folks, this is huge. If you don't get anything else today, hear from the word of God that he has devised a way to be live consistent with his righteousness and at the same time give you a righteousness and me a righteousness that we can't earn and we don't deserve. This is good news. God has devised a way that salvation is, is 
the power of God for salvation comes through this gospel to those who believe because in this faith, for faith in this believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, a great exchange happens. In a life that falls short, a life that is sinful, is given a righteousness that is not their own. It's a righteousness that Jesus provides in that Jesus lived a righteous life none of us could live. That Jesus, the only one who didn't deserve to die, died on a cross and paid the debt for sin. Saved up from Adam to the end of the world. He was judged for the, man, for the sin of man. And now he gives us this great exchange where you receive an alien righteousness, not of your own. That God gives to you through this gift of faith as you believe so you can stand before God righteous. What a powerful, powerful reality the gospel is for us. Amen? This is a legal term. We see it later on in Romans where he talks about God being the just and the justifier. I've spent 10 years in a courtroom listening to juries say guilty or not guilty. I got to tell you, there is no more intense moment in my life at least than sitting at that table and hearing the judge say we got a note the jury has a verdict call for the jury as a prosecutor I'm like here it is and I often think in that moment as I feel that rush of adrenaline and nervousness and and sick feeling in my stomach I often look over to the defense table and think How's he feeling, right? Wow. He's about to hear either two words or one word, and everything is going to change. What a moment. They, they shuffle into the courtroom. They sit down. It feels like an eternity. The judge looks over at them. They're holding the piece of paper and says, have you reached a verdict? Yes, we have. What are your verdicts? To hear those words come out of their mouth. In the courtroom of God's economy, every one of us stands guilty. As we walk through Romans, we're going to see the depth of our guilt before God. But because of Jesus and the punishment that he took upon himself for me and for you because of Jesus and his righteousness, that he lived this righteous life and then the righteous one, the spotless lamb of God, the one who was pointed to through every sacrifice in the Old Testament as it was revealed first to the Jews as it began to point towards Christ, the spotless lamb of God, the sacrifice for the sin of the world as he took upon himself that that experience, that separation from God, not just the physical beating of crucifixion, not just the physical torture of, of the whipping and the nails and the, and the beating and the, the nailing to the cross, but the moment as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We realize that in that moment that Jesus became the most despicable sight in the history of the world, as the sin of the world and the judgment for God, the judgment of God for sin was poured out dry on him, 
as he experienced something nobody sitting in this room has ever experienced, complete separation from God. As, as this separation, as God turned from him, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because sin needed to be punished. The debt for sin needed to be paid. The, the things we do to each other, the way we hurt each other, the way we abuse each other, the way we steal from each other, the way we covet from each other, the way that we treat each other in our bitterness, in our selfishness, in our violence, it needed to be paid for. God wouldn't be a righteous, holy God if he left that debt unpaid. And because he's consistent with his righteousness, he paid it. He directed it all at Jesus. So that as you and I who have received this alien gift from God, the faith to believe and receive a righteousness that is not our own, we stand in the courtroom of God and we hear the words, not guilty. Completely justified. Regardless of the reality of our guilt. Jesus paid for it. Not guilty. Martin Luther said. It's like the gates of paradise flung open. And I walked through. And I was born again. And the reality of this justification. That comes from the righteousness of Jesus. Applied to his life. Caused him to stand in the face of any persecution. Stand in the face of anyone who would mock. Stand in the face of even possible death. And say, I can't say anything else other than this. I can do no other. Does the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ rise up in us. To a degree that we feel obligated to preach the gospel. And share the good news of Jesus Christ. Regardless of those who think it's foolish. Regardless of those who would mock. Regardless of those who would tear it down. To stand unashamed of the gospel. Because Jesus has saved me and given me something I don't deserve. And declared me not guilty. And because it is the power of God for salvation. Amen? Good news. Paul brings to bear all the verses in the Bible that talk about his righteousness, and it says it is revealed to us. For it's the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. What do we see here? We say this is we see that this is an initiating work of God, that God reveals it to us. This isn't something you just Scramble in your own human capability to come up with. God reveals this to us. This faith comes from God. This ability to even believe comes from God. And it's revealed to us. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith or from faith to faith. From beginning to end. We see that God has revealed this to us and given us this gift. The rest of the book of Romans, as we walk through it, folks, is only going to unpack and reveal to us the detail of Paul's gospel here, of the gospel that he's received from Jesus. It's going to reveal to us in detail the realities of these two verses that we're talking about this morning. You're going to see in Romans chapter 1 through 3, your unrighteousness, as we study this together. You're going to see in Romans chapter 3 through 8, God providing the righteousness we need. You're going to see in Romans chapter 9 through 11, God's vindicating work 
of salvation. You're going to see in Romans chapter 12 through 16, the righteous transforming lives of people. The righteousness of God transforming the life of people as we're conformed by the word of God. And the reality of the gospel produces in us a life of worship that changes and that lives out the transforming work that's happened inside of us. We're going to spend the next several weeks unpacking this thesis in Romans 1, 16 and 17. Not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God and salvation. It's revealed righteousness, alien righteousness that's given to us from God. And as it is written, Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous will live by faith. The gospel's revealed in Habakkuk 2.4 that the righteous will live by faith and Paul declares that this has always been true from the Old Testament to the New Testament. The, the death and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus is, is a faith in God that extends back to the Old Testament and forward to the end of time as, as the righteous shall live by this faith that God gives them to live in this great exchange of righteousness that he gives us that we don't deserve. Declared, the righteous will live by faith. And it's consistent throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is one way of salvation from beginning to end. And it's gloriously confirmed throughout Scripture. I want to close with this. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most life-transforming, beautiful reality that God has revealed to mankind. The Princeton theologian uh, Charles Hodge said it this way, the gospel is so simple that small children can understand it. And it's so profound that studies by the wisest theologians will never exhaust it. The gospel of Jesus Christ, it's so simple kids can get it. And it's so profound, we could study it for the rest of our lives and never, ever, ever exhaust it. We are committed here at, at Renovation Church to attempting, recognizing we never, never will, to exhaust the realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not going to move on from it. We're not going to Talk about weightier things because there is no other weightier thing than the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power of God and the salvation. This alien righteousness has been given to us, the death, the resurrection, the salvation of Jesus. The gospel of Jesus Christ will be preached from this pulpit as long as we're here. Amen? We can't exhaust it. Why would we divert from it? Why would we water it down? Why would we preach a false one that's not revealed in Scripture? Why would we spend our time talking about other things? The gospel, the actual gospel, is the power, resurrection power of God for salvation. Let us be transformed by it, live in it, study it, and never be ashamed of it. Because it's the power of God and the salvation. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your revealed gospel that you've given to us. 
We thank you that it has not just transformed the world, but it's transformed our lives. Help us to get close to the sparks of it. Help us to keep it in front of us. Help us to preach it to ourselves every day that it would that it would continually spark off into our lives and light us up, illuminate to us, God. Help us to keep it in front of us throughout our Monday and Tuesday, our Monday through Friday, as we come to worship you on Sunday. God, let us keep the gospel central. Thank you for its power. Thank you for the reality of this exchange. Thank you for your righteousness. Thank you for salvation. Let the gospel in the realities of it, turn our lives into lives that respond in worship to you. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.